If you have not been with us the last few weeks, we are right in the middle of a series on Jesus. Uh, so far we've covered the birth of Christ, and then last week we, du- we dug into the, to the life of Jesus Christ, and then today we are going to dig into the death of Christ. Uh, so you've picked a good day to come if you haven't been here. Uh, and this is where we're at, and this is where we'll be for the next few weeks. Uh, next week we'll jump into the resurrection of Christ. And then uh, so on from there, we'll, we'll stick with it. Um, I'm going to pray for us before we get started, and then we will dive in. Jesus, I just want to come to you, Lord, and just proclaim hallelujah to your name. That you are worthy, Lord Jesus, to be worshipped with endless and matchless praise for what you've done. You are worthy, Lord. You are the slaughtered lamb that was slain for our sins. And God, now we are forgiven. We're your people, God. You've purchased us for yourself, Jesus. I just want to bring you all the praise for what you've done, Lord. I pray that would be our heart in these next moments, that you would be glorified. God, I pray, I thank you so much for your powerful word, the sword of the Spirit of God that you've given us, Lord. And I pray that you would come and help us to hear it, God. Help us to hear your word in such a way that brings about edification and Christ-likeness. God, help these next few moments not fall into futility or vanity, but Lord, I pray that You would use them. God, that You would come down from heaven and that You would walk among Your people. God, that You would help me to teach Your Word with the strength that You supply, God, that You would be glorified in all things. And God, I pray that You would help us as a church to glory in You, Lord Jesus. To exalt You, Lord. To love You more. To be so full of praise for what You've done for us, God. And I pray, God, that You would, that you would instruct Your people. That You would speak to Your children. And I ask that in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen. Uh, I told you to turn to Luke 22, but uh, hold your place there and go to 1 Corinthians 15. If you're around, you hear this verse a lot around here. Ryan actually alluded to it earlier. We're going to read uh, verses 3 through 5. And before we do, I want this question to be rolling around in your mind, rattling around in your brain. Okay, What is the most important thing in all of history? What's the answer to that question? Okay. What is the most exalted thought that could ever roll across your mind? Higher than every single one that you can think of. What's the most important thing? What's the most exalted thing? Okay. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 5 is going to answer that question. We're going to read that together. Here we go. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. I delivered to you as of first importance. And then what does God say is the most important thing according to his word? What I want you to see here is that he exalts the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to what the word of God would say. That is the highest, that is the weightiest Nothing else can touch it. It's the matter of, of first importance. Okay? 
So I want you to see that in that verse. The, four, the most important thing that can ever roll across your mind is that Christ died for your sins. And the way that that plays out, He died and He was buried. He was, he was raised and He appeared. It's repetitive. In other words, God's saying this. It's the most important thing. He died and He was buried. He was buried means He really died. He died? No, He really died. They put Him in the ground. Okay? He was raised from the dead. No, He was really raised because He appeared. Okay? This is the most exalted thing in the Word of God. If this is called the matter of first importance, then just common sense would tell you that there are other important things, but they're of secondary importance. Okay? Nothing can rival what we're about to dig into. Nothing stands in its place and nothing can stand beside it. This is the matter of first importance. This doctrine is given a central and supreme place in the Word of God. And we're going to unpack that. So we have 1 Corinthians 15, and that's like a nuke going off on the shelf. That this is the most important thing in all the Bible. It's so clear. But we get way more evidence okay, than that. We're going to unpack some of that together. The supremacy of the cross of Jesus Christ. Consider the following. The most important thing to Jesus. Okay, What if we could isolate that? Jesus, Jesus said that He came to this world to die for our sins. So in Jesus' mind, the reason that He came was to die for our sins. And we see this in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Listen to this. Jesus says, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give Him His life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to give His life as a ransom for many. This literally means that Jesus Christ was, was born into this world to die for our sins. And Jesus said, this is why I came. Okay? This is also taught in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 17. It reads as follows, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, since we share in flesh and blood, Jesus partook of the same things. You know what the next three words say? That through death. Jesus took on flesh. Why? To die. God can't die. He became the God-man to die for our sins. This is why He came. This is confirmed three verses later in verse 17. Hebrews 2.17 says that Jesus was made like us in every respect. If you go to that end, verse, end of that verse, you'll find out that it's to make propitiation. Okay, He was made like you to make propitiation for our sins. That's a bloody payment to God. This is a reference to His death. Jesus Christ was born to die. Okay, This is the reason for why He came. Reason for, for why He came to us. Now listen to this. There's more evidence. Jesus Christ claimed to have an hour for which He came into this world. Okay? What, so if you had an hour, what, what does that mean? That means that you can bowl up and sum up the whole purpose of your life and it happens in an hour. And Jesus had one. Listen to this. John 12, verse 27. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I have come to this hour. And we see in Jesus' ministry several times 
and conversations with his family and with his disciples, he would say, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Okay? And then in John 13, verse 1, we have this phrase, his hour had come to depart out of this world. Jesus came into the world for an hour, and the hour for which Jesus came into the world was the same hour that he departed from the world. This is a reference to his death. Okay? The hour of Jesus is the hour in which he would die. John 17, 1, he says, Father, my hour has come. And in Mark 14, verse 35, I want you to see this. Jesus prays that his hour would pass from him. He's praying to the Father and he's asking that the hour would pass for him, from him. And you know what he says in the very next verse? He links his hour to the cup of wrath that he would drink from his Father. Okay, so Jesus' hour that he came for which he came into this world was the hour that he drank the cup of wrath for sinners. This is the hour that he died on the cross. Okay, this is the supreme message of the Word of God that Christ died for our sins. The gospel itself, the good news that saves sinners, can be summarized as the message of the cross. That's First Corinthians chapter one verse seventeen. Are the word of the cross, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Or you could even sum it up with this phrase, Christ crucified. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. And then think about this. The Bible exalts this theme over and over and over again that Christ has died for our sins. And then in Revelation 5, we get a picture of what the church does for all eternity. Okay? And we sing praise to Jesus as the slaughtered Lamb of God who ransomed people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is what we praise Him for forever. Okay? So now, this is, the, this is the matter of first importance. And forever, and 10 million years after that, we will sing praise to Jesus as the slaughtered Lamb who's ransomed us to God. So this stands at the center of God's revelation to us in Scripture. Okay? The, cross of, the most important things that Christ died for our sins. God gets the most glory for what He's done in Jesus Christ. And the cross of Jesus is at the center of the, of the revelation of, of the person and work of Christ. So I'm just stacking just layers of importance on this topic, on this doctrine. And I want this to be edifying to you. Very many people in this room have heard this over and over and over again. Okay, But this needs to be the sweetest thing in your spirit. The most exalted thing in your mind. And as you understand this rightly, and as we grow in our knowledge of Christ crucified, we explode with praise and worship to God for what He's done for us. Okay, So I want us to pay attention. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay out a lot of doctrine and a lot of verses. Okay, I've got a lot to cover in the next few moments and I've given you a lot of Scripture references on your page. And if you can't flip to everyone, that's fine, but please make a point to try to listen and to try to go back and drive these things into your soul. We're going we're gonna to dive into Christ crucified. Okay? We're, we're about to read... Um, every Gospel records Jesus' crucifixion. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And since we've been in Luke uh, for the past several weeks, we're going to read Luke's account. So turn to Luke chapter 23. We're going to read quite a few verses together. So we're going to start in verse 26. 
and read to verse 53. I want you to be thinking in the back of your mind the whole time you're reading this that God has already told us this is the most important thing, so let's let the Holy Spirit drive His Word into our hearts. All right, Luke chapter 23. I'm going to roll through this faster than I would normally read, okay? Verse 26. The, the crucifixion of Jesus. As they led Him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on Him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed Him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for Him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for Me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us. And to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Him. And the criminals, one on His right and one on His left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide His garments. And the people stood by watching but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the others rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two and Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds had assembled for this spectacle. And when they saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breast. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Okay, this is the historical account. This is Luke's account of the crucifixion of Christ. And if we were to just summarize that in a few sentences, okay, and we were to isolate what happened to Jesus just then, what we just read, okay, Pilate sentenced Jesus to death and a group of Roman soldiers start leading Jesus Christ to a place called Golgotha or Calvary. Okay, it's a place of death. And there were two sinners who were going to be crucified with Jesus. 
And you saw this, the first verse we read mentions Simon of Cyrene. Okay? And most likely what had happened is Jesus was absolutely exhausted from being flogged and losing a lot of blood. Okay? And, they, and he was having trouble carrying this cross to Golgotha. And so they tagged this guy named Simon of Cyrene and he helps Jesus to carry his cross to his place of death. And when they finally get there, when this group gets there, the Word of God says, and it just says it real brief, okay? It's, it's crazy how the, how the matter of most importance, you just pass over and it says, and they crucified Him, okay? And when they got there, they crucified Jesus Christ. And what that would have meant was that Jesus would have, uh, first thing they did to Him was they stripped His clothes off, Okay? And then Jesus would have been stretched out on a Roman cross and He would have had His nails nailed to a horizontal beam. And His feet, He would have had spikes driven through to a vertical beam. And then He would have been stood up and left to die on the cross. Okay? Mark's Gospel, you didn't read it in Luke. Mark's Gospel tells you that they crucified Jesus at 9 o'clock in the morning. And Christ, Jesus hung on the cross for six hours. And at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the Word of God teaches us that Jesus Christ breathed His last breath. Okay? Now, this is the historical account. Alright? If you would have been standing in Jerusalem that day, at the foot of Golgotha, that is what you would have seen. You would have seen a man crucified. You would have seen a man hanging in agony. And you would have seen a man die. Okay? If you would have been there that day, that's what you would have seen. This is beyond dispute the historical account of the death of Jesus, even pagans who don't trust in Jesus and who don't follow Jesus, even pagans accept that, the, that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified in Jerusalem around 33 A.D. This really did happen. This is not a fairy tale. Okay? What I want us to dig into is what's going on behind the historical narrative. Okay? That you just read the history of Christ's death. But think about this. 1 Corinthians 15 says that the most important thing is not that Christ died. It's that He died for our sins. Okay? And you say, hang on a second. He died for our sins. We just read Luke's Gospel and He didn't say anything about our sins. Okay? And that ought to be a red flag to you that there's a lot more going on in the cross of Jesus than what meets the eye. Okay? There's a lot more going on than you would have seen if you were standing at the foot of Golgotha and you watched him die. There's a lot of other things happening behind the scenes. Okay? There would have been many people who watched Jesus Christ die that would have had no idea that he was making atonement for sin. Okay? They would have had no idea. And in the same way for us, you can hear this so many times that Jesus died, Jesus died, Jesus died on the cross, and you can have very little understanding of why He died. Okay, You can have very little understanding of why this was necessary, why this is the most weighty thing, and you can have very little understanding of what's going on behind the scenes. And so I don't want us to be like a clueless Jew standing at the foot of Golgotha seeing the Son of God die. We're going to get behind these things. We're going to unpack them. Okay, we're about to dive into something that has been called substitutionary atonement. In other words, behind the scenes, if you were to summarize what's happening, you don't have to use this phrase. Okay, if you were to summarize what's happening behind the scenes, okay, you could call it substitutionary atonement. The first question that we're going to seek to answer 
And I want you to think hard about this. I want every person in this room to come away with an answer to this question. The first question that we're going to answer is why did Jesus die on the cross? Why did He have to? Okay? You need to know an answer to that question. And if your answer is, well, He died for our sins, that doesn't answer the question. Because you just come back and say, why did He have to die for our sins? You need to know an answer to that. Why did Jesus Christ have to die on the cross? Why did Jesus have to die for our sins? To answer that question, you're going to need to know two things. This is gospel background. This is the background and the prelude to the cross of Jesus. You need to know two things. That man is sinful. Not good. Man is sinful. And that God is holy. So let's look at those. 1 John 3, 4. Man is sinful. Sin is defined for us in 1 John 3, 4. It says this real simple phrase. Sin is lawlessness. So the Bible teaches us that God has a law. And when we break God's law, the Bible calls that sin. Okay? Sin is lawlessness. It would be wrong for us to leave it there and to understand sin merely as rule breaking. Okay? The Bible teaches that sin is personally committed against God. Okay? So sin is lawlessness and God made that law. Okay? He's the king that makes the law. And when we break God's law, when we breach God's law, we actually rebel against God the king. Sin is personally committed against God. Therefore, in Psalm 51 verse 4, David prays this, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight. Man is sinful. Man has rebelled against God. The, uh, scripture clearly teaches that this affects everyone, all mankind. Romans 3.23 says this, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes 7.20 affirms this also. There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Man is sinful and everyone has sinned. Okay? The Bible also teaches that not only that we're sinful, but that we're also accountable to God for what we've done. Not only have we rebelled against the king, but we're, we're going to give an account to the king for our, our rebellion. Okay? It's not isolated. We, we are accountable to God for what we've done. Romans 3.19 pictures lost humanity with their mouth shut, standing before God, being held accountable for what they've done. All of humanity will have their mouth shut and stand accountable for God for what they've done. Okay? There's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. The second thing... Man is sinful and God is holy. God is so holy that he cannot even look at sin. Habakkuk 1.13 says this about God. You are a purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. You are a purer eyes than to see evil and you cannot look at wrong. Isaiah 59.2 says that our sins hide God's face from us. He can't even look at it. He's so holy. Okay. This is the God of the Bible. Our sins make God angry. Psalm 711 says this, God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. 
Our sins make God angry. And God has promised to punish our sins. The God who never lies has promised to punish our sins. Ezekiel 18 verse 4 says this. Listen to this. Behold, all souls are mine. This is God. He just claimed everyone's soul in this room and everyone's soul that's on this earth. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son and the soul who sins shall die. God owns you. God is your King. You belong to Him. And He has promised you that the soul who sins will die. Okay? Man is sinful. And God is holy. God has promised to us that the wages of sin is death. That's Romans 6 verse 23. This includes physical death. You will die. But it means more than that. In Revelation 21, God tells us that there's a second death that awaits all sinners. Draws a vivid picture. It's called the lake of fire. Eternal torment. Okay? This is, this is, the, this is the wrath of God that will be poured out on all sinners. God is holy. J.I. Packer defines the wrath of God like this. His righteous reaction to all unrighteousness. That's who God is. He's the righteous judge. Okay? And He has a holy and a violent reaction against all sin and all unrighteousness. This is the bad news of the Bible. Okay? That man has sinned and that God is holy. This is the bad news and it's cover to cover. The Bible is saturated with the bad news. You don't need to run from the bad news. You need to understand the bad news. Man has sinned and God has promised to punish all sinners. This is the bad news. But the Bible also reveals good news. Listen to this. God will forgive sinners. We see this as early as Genesis 3. Right after Adam and Eve fall, God clothes them with garments of animal skin. Psalm 130 verse 4 says this, But with you there is forgiveness. Nehemiah 9, 17 pictures God, listen to this, as ready to forgive. And Jeremiah 31 verse 34, God promises, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. I want to just tell you a quick comment about this. Our culture has shifted a lot in the last few hundred years. You say, what do you mean? I mean this. You just heard about the bad news and the good news. Okay? It used to be that people had trouble believing the good news. Okay? And that the thing that they struggled with that kept them up at night would be more like, how could a righteous God forgive sinners? How could this even happen? How could a righteous God forgive sinners? And you have examples of like Martin Luther. He almost drove himself suicidal just with the thought that God was about to rip his, pour out His wrath on him at any moment. The world's changed a lot in the last few hundred years. And, and now today, today the thing that we struggle with, and you hear this in, in forms, several and various forms, how could a good God punish sinners? And that's what we have trouble choking down. Okay? How could a good God punish sinners? You see this all the time. Okay? You let uh, some kind of catastrophe happen or a tragedy, and it floods the news. How could a good God let this happen? How could a good God let this happen? Okay? 
Take, for example, a plane going down. You see it every time something like that happens. And they say, well, how could a good God let those hundred and so people live? I mean, uh, how could a good God let them die? How could a good God let that happen? Either he's not good. That's, that's what the pagans assault God with. Either he's not good or he doesn't have the power to change it. Either he's a little bitty, teeny tiny God or he's not a good God. And God is assaulted in that way. You will never hear this on the news, and this is the culture that you live in. You'll never hear somebody on the news come on and say, 25,000 planes landed safe today all over planet Earth. How could a righteous God be this good to sinners? You'll never hear that. And He is faithful, and He is kind, and He is merciful to sinners. But you hear this downplayed. And our culture presumes upon the kindness of God. And this is the culture that you live in. Okay? Your culture rejects the bad news that a righteous God will judge sinners and punish sinners. Okay? The Bible teaches both of these, the bad news and the good news. Judgment and forgiveness. And what you need to know is that this creates quite a problem. Say, so what do you mean? When you begin to try, to try to really think this out, which is true, the bad news or the good news, it creates quite a problem in your mind. How can the bad news be true? And how can the good news be true at the same time? How can God be just and give sinners what they deserve? And how can God be merciful and offer forgiveness to sinners? How can God do this at the same time? And the moment that you begin to understand that question is the moment you begin to understand the why of the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask it like this. This should puzzle you. How these two things together, if it hasn't puzzled you before, it should have puzzled you. You should have lost some sleep over this and spent a lot of time trying to figure this one out. Okay? How can the bad news and the good news be true at the same time? It's not a contradiction, but it does puzzle our mind. Here's what I mean. Here's a text. Isaiah 45, 21. And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. And our question is, how can God be a righteous God and a Savior? How can God be a righteous God and a Savior? Or think about it like this. Exodus 34, verse 7, describes God. This will really scramble your brain. It describes God as forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Now, you might be a lot smarter than me, but you tell me how that works. In the same verse, without even breaking the sentence, God forgives sin and by no means clears the guilty. The good news, He forgives sin. The bad news is that the guilty will not be cleared. How does that go together? Okay. This, un this unpacks the why of the cross. The Bible clearly teaches that God extends mercy. But He does so in a way that He maintains His justice. Okay? God extends mercy to sinners, but He does so in a way that maintains His justice. This is very important because many of you grew up in this culture. It's a perverted and a skewed view of God's forgiveness. And I don't know how it went for you, but here's how I thought it happened for the longest time. God is merciful. He's so kind. 
He'll forgive you. Okay, what do I do? Just tell him you're sorry. Just tell God you're sorry for your sins. Acknowledge your sins and tell God you're sorry and ask God to forgive you. And that may be the way that you think about God's forgiveness. And I'm going to tell you that on the authority of the Word of God, you can be so sorry that you drive yourself into despair for your sins and the God of the Bible will not forgive you on the basis that you are sorry for your sins. Okay? And you're going to understand that why, why that's true if you pay attention real close in the next few minutes. God cannot forgive you on the basis that you're sorry. He only extends His mercy and His forgiveness to you while maintaining His justice. He's a righteous God and a Savior. Okay? God brings about our forgiveness in such a way that when it's done, Romans 3 verse 26 says He's this. Okay? He's just and the justifier. That means when God saves us at the end of it, we can say that God is just and He's the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. He's just and the justifier. He does it in a way to maintain His justice. If you don't understand this, just hang tight. Okay? At the cross of Jesus... God simultaneously fulfills the bad news and the good news. Think about this. The justice of God is demonstrated in the cross of Christ. God by no means clears the guilty and God punishes sin at the cross. God, God unleashes, unleashes His righteous wrath on Jesus Christ. And He is the just God who by no means clears the guilty. And at the cross of Jesus, God forgives sinners. And God fulfills the good news. God displays His mercy. And at, at the cross, God is just and the justifier. He's the righteous God and the Savior. He by, he by no means clears the guilty, but He offers us forgiveness. I hope that is so clear to you. That the cross is the only answer to that question. How can He be a righteous God and a Savior? Substitutionary atonement. Someone was punished in our place. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Okay? This answers the why of the cross. It had to be done in this way. There is no other way. Okay? God, in order to forgive you, and if He, if he was willing to extend mercy, there was no, no other way for this to happen. His justice had to be satisfied. He's the righteous God and the Savior. Okay, the next question I want to dive into is how. And this is where we'll spend the rest of our time. How does God save us at the cross? How does that happen? How does it work? You know, that understands, that unpacks the why, but how, okay? We're going to dive into, dive into this, this whole idea and this teaching of the atonement. Throughout the Old Testament, very early in the Bible, okay, you have this concept and this idea of a blood sacrifice for sin. You see it in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. God clothes them with animal garments. You see it with Abel in Genesis 4. You see it with Abraham in Genesis 22, and so on and so on and so on. And then you get to the law of Moses. That's uh, Exodus through Deuteronomy. And you have an extremely detailed, bloody, bloody, bloody system put in place. Okay, A bloody sacrificial system in the law of Moses. What is God communicating to us? As, as, we're, reading this, as we're reading through the Old Testament, what, am, what are we supposed to be thinking about as we see things like that? blood, sacrifice, over and over and over again. 
supposed to think man is sinful and God is holy and the only way that man is ever going to be right with God is through substitution. Okay, We're going to dive into that more. Hebrews 10 verse 4 says this about the law of Moses and that whole sacrificial system. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's like, man, what, what is that all about? If it didn't even take away sin, why is it even there? And we know from the Word of God that these things were a shadow that pointed to the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. So God's communicating something, but these things never saved. Never saved anybody. Only the Lamb of God saves us. Substitutionary atonement is taught nowhere clearer than Leviticus 16 as what the Bible calls the Day of Atonement is described to us. So please turn there. We're going to dive into Leviticus 16. If you would have asked me as a young Christian if I'd ever taught through Leviticus, I'd have probably told you you were crazy. But I love this idea. This is a rich thing. When you find out that the Old Testament, that it leads you to Jesus Christ, it becomes a beautiful thing to you. Uh, and so Leviticus 16, we'll go there. We'll read several verses. I'm going to read verse 29 and 30 and verse 34. Read that with me. The Day of Atonement. It shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourself, which means fast, and shall do no work, either the native, nor the stranger, or the sojourner who is among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Verse 34, And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement, may be made, but that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. This was the most important day under the Old Testament Jewish system. And, and we know that from verse 30 because this is the day that the people of God were made clean before the Lord. Okay? This is the day that God dealt with their sins. And that vast gap between sinful man and holy God, God graciously answered. And He made atonement for His people. Okay, If you go to verse 2, this whole chapter is the day of atonement. And there's so many details here. We're not going to read the whole thing. We're just going to kind of pick up a few things. I'd, I would very much encourage you to read this. And to ask God just to teach you these things and show you Jesus Christ in Leviticus 16. In verse 2, God, God begins to give His people vivid details of how atonement will be made for their sins. In verse 2, he, he tells the high priest that this is supposed to be done in such a way to avoid death. Okay? He gave them specific instructions so that as, as the high priest, priest would approach God, he wouldn't die. Okay? And that's a good reminder for us. That he, he was intended to go behind the veil to the mercy seat of God. Into the very presence of God. And if he didn't do it in such a way, God would strike him dead. Okay? God is a holy God who punishes sin. We're going we're gonna to laser in and focus on, on in verse 5, these two goats that are part of the Day of Atonement in verse 5. They're, they're two goats and they make up a sin offering. Uh, let's read that real quick. Verse 5. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering. 
And that's where we're spending the rest of our time unpacking. Okay? Two male goats for a sin offering. What I want you to know in this story, that this is so rich. Jesus is everything in this story. Okay? He's the high priest and the sacrifice. Okay? He is the one making atonement, and He is the sacrifice that's being atoned. Okay? He's the priest and the sacrifice. This is an awesome thing. Okay? He's the offerer and the offering. In uh, John chapter 1, verse 29, Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. These two goats represent the work that Jesus does for us on the cross. Okay? It gets behind that historical narrative. And if you were there at Golgotha and you'd have watched Jesus die, these two goats inform us of what happened okay? that you couldn't see with your eyes. What happened during the death of Christ. They represent the work of Christ on His cross. And they, these two goats foreshadow Jesus coming as the Lamb of God. All right, I want you to notice that in verse 5, there are two goats for a sin offering. Okay? Two goats, one offering. Okay? Sin offerings being made, but you have two different pictures of how the, of how the sin offering is going to be accomplished. Two goats, one offering. In verse 8, the high priest is told to cast lots over both of these goats. So you got these two goats, and he casts lots. And one's going to go and be killed before the Lord. Okay? And the other goat is going to be presented alive before the Lord as the Azazel, or your version might say the scapegoat. Okay? You got two goats, lots are being cast, and they're both going before God. Alright? That's verse 8. In verse 15, the high priest is commanded to kill one of the goats before the Lord. He slaughters the goat and the goat dies. And that's a good reminder. When, God, when you hear this language about blood satisfying God, it's not like you just scratch your hand and, and, and do that. They didn't scratch a goat and drop some of its blood out and then sprinkle it on the mercy seat. It was slaughtered. Okay? The blood of Christ is a reference to the death of Jesus, the slaughtering of Christ. He, he was slaughtered for sinners. Okay? He didn't get scratched. He died. Same picture here. This goat was killed, and the blood that represents his death was carried behind the veil into the presence of this holy, holy, holy God. And Aaron, the high priest, began to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. This picture is specifically a, a, a reference to the work of propitiation. Okay? That word shows up a couple of times in your Bible. Romans 3 is one. Propitiation means that God's wrath is turned away. Okay? That you have this picture of this goat and its blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat and the effect of it is God's wrath is being satisfied. That whole death and God punishing, it satisfies the wrath of God. This is propitiation. And it's a vivid, it's a vivid description of a substitute. Think about this. Leviticus 16, that goat dies for the sin of the people. Jesus Christ on the cross didn't die for His own sins. He died for the sins of others. This is substitution. God's been revealing this to people uh, since Leviticus chapter 16 and even before that, that He would reveal this Lamb who would be the Lamb that would take away the sin of the world. This is substitution. It's the only, only, only hope for lost mankind is a substitute. Okay? Propitiation removes God's wrath and Jesus becomes a bloody payment for our sin. Listen to this. As He becomes our substitute, 
our sins, your sins, specific sins, are placed on Jesus. Listen to this language in the Word of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Okay? The Word of God teaches that you have sinned, everyone has sinned, and Jesus Christ, our sins were laid on Him, and He bore them. He bore our sins in His body. And when did it happen? It happened when He was on the tree. This is a reference to the death of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. He became your substitute. Your sins were laid on Him like this goat that was slaughtered before God. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. This is a reference to Jesus, that our sins were laid on Christ. On the cross, Jesus became your substitute. And this is perhaps even a better word. He became your sin bearer. Okay? Jesus became your sin bearer. He bore the sins of His people on the cross. What happens to Jesus as He begins to bear your sins on the cross, in His body on the tree? What happens to Him? And the answer of what happens to Christ is almost unthinkable. Okay? What happens next? Many of you know this. Listen, listen to this. God begins to pour, God the Father begins to punish Jesus Christ as though he were guilty of your sin. And he begins to pour out his holy, just, and violent wrath. Isaiah 53, verse 10 says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Okay? Jesus bore our sins and then God begins to punish him. And the word of God says that, that God begins to even crush him. And this was the will of God. Pour out his wrath on the lamb. Isaiah 53, verse 3 and 4. Jesus was smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. God crushed Jesus for our sins. Why does God do this? Why does God crush Jesus for our sins? And if you've been paying attention, you know the answer. That God crushes Jesus for our sins to extend mercy to sinners while maintaining His justice. That's the only answer to that question. Okay? God in His great love and His mercy does this in such a way that His justice would be maintained. God hates sin and must punish it and He punished Jesus Christ. The excruciating pain of Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus experienced excruciating pain. He was nailed to a Roman cross. Okay? The word, our word excruciating describes like the most intense pain that you, can, that you can experience. And that word, excruciating, it literally means this. It, it comes from the Latin word and it means out of crucifying. Okay? This is torment. Okay? And Jesus experienced this, physical pain. But it was nothing compared to what Jesus experienced behind the historical narrative. Okay? So what do you mean? Isaiah 53 verse 11 calls it the anguish of his soul. Jesus experienced inner turmoil. Soul, his soul was in anguish. Okay? As he began to drink the, drink the cup of the wrath of God for sinners. And the holy, just, righteous wrath of God was poured out on Christ. And he was in anguish. And the physical pain 
It just represents the, the deeper, real spiritual pain as Jesus was separated, cursed by God. He bore our, our sins and He bore God's punishment. He drank the cup of wrath from His Father. God violently reacts and punishes sin and Jesus Christ pays the ultimate price. He gives His life for sinners. And He becomes the once for all atonement lamb. Okay? Those, those goats that were slaughtered before God could never take away sin, but Jesus dies for our sins and He becomes the once for all atonement lamb. Let's come back to Leviticus 16 to the second goat. There were two goats. We just unpacked one. One of them was slaughtered before God and His blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat for our forgiveness. The second goat is the scapegoat or the Azazel mentioned in verse 10. This goat is presented alive before God. This goat gives us an additional view of what Jesus does for us on the cross. Listen to verse 21. The high priest is commanded to do this. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put on them, on them he shall put on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. Okay? So I want you to think, think, think about picturing that as you, as you watch Jesus die on Golgotha. What if that was in your mind? Okay? This atonement picture. Here we have another vivid picture of our sins being laid on the goat. This is another picture of substitution. It's probably a clearer one because he stands there and he puts both hands on this goat's hand and he starts confessing his sins onto this goat. I don't think there could be a clearer example of sin bearing. That, I, that th these are our sins and we're confessing them, but we're putting them on this goat. Okay? This is a picture. The first goat was a picture of propitiation, which means the removal of God's wrath. God's wrath is satisfied. This goat is a picture of expiation, which means the removal of our sins. Okay? God's wrath was satisfied with the first goat. This is a picture of our sins being removed. The first goat removes uh, wrath. This goat removes sin. This is a picture of the work of Christ on the cross. Listen to verse 22. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. This symbolizes not only the wrath of God has been satisfied, but our sins have been carried away by the Lord Jesus Christ from the presence of God. They've been carried away, and they're never to be seen again. Okay? God's wrath has been satisfied at the cross and our sins have been carried away by the scapegoat, the Lord Jesus, never to be seen again. Okay? This is a picture that we have. This is a beautiful description of God's forgiveness. Listen to Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Isaiah 38, verse 17 you have cast all my sins behind your back. Micah 7, 19. I love this verse. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. And the great promise of the new covenant in Hebrews 10, 17, God says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Jesus, our scapegoat, has carried our sins away from God's holy presence and we're never 
to give account for them ever again. God will not remember our sins because of what Christ has done. This is how God brings about forgiveness. He becomes the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus died like a slaughtered lamb, and His death satisfies the justice of God and brings about our forgiveness. And this is why the Word of God exalts us to a matter of most importance, that Christ died for our sins. And there is nothing that rivals that. There's nothing more exalted than that. There's nothing more weighty than that. Christ died for our sins. I want to finish. The gospel gives a powerful example. A little detail in the crucifixion account gives a powerful example of how final the work of Jesus is. Okay? That once it's finished, it, it, you can't go back on it. Alright? Here's what I mean. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this detail. That right around the moment that Jesus Christ died, that means breathed His last breath, right around that moment, do you know what it says happened in Jerusalem? The Word of God teaches that there was this curtain, this veil in the temple of God that separated the holy place from the, from the, from the common place. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that this curtain was ripped. At the moment that Christ died, all three of them said that this curtain was ripped in half from top to bottom. Okay, That is a sweet, powerful little detail in that crucifixion account that something's going on here. This is more than a man dying in Jerusalem. This is something's happening here. This this veil, this curtain just got ripped in half. So I want you to think about that. The veil being ripped open. This is the description if you go back to Leviticus 16 that high priest went behind the veil to the mercy seat and he had to make atonement in such a way. And he's the only one that could go. Scripture is very clear on that. that only the high priest could enter in and he could only go once a year and he had to have blood. But when that veil rips open in Jerusalem, in those gospel accounts, when that veil rips open, it symbolizes that access to this holy, holy, holy God has now been made available because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Okay? I want you to think about that. To seal this off, I got another thought for you. Ryan just mentioned, this is awesome how this worked out. Ryan mentioned this earlier about this dying breath thing. You know, like he, it's a vivid, you really do have one. There will be a breath that you take in your life that will be your last. It will be your dying breath, your last breath. John, John's record of Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus in his dying breath so you get this detail. The moment he dies, the veil in the temple is ripped in half. And we have access to this holy, holy, holy God. And then Jesus, his dying breath, says in John 19, verse 30, he says this. It is finished. And, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. John 19, 30, it is finished. That's what Jesus said the moment that he left this world. Something happened. He accomplished the work, and he didn't just start it that day in Jerusalem. He said, it is finished. And the veil was ripped right in half. Okay? And this is substitutionary atonement. This is how the holy God makes us right with Him. Okay? And this is, this is what's happening behind the historical narrative. And we say to this, when, when we hear this, this, whole, this whole work, this whole work that Jesus has done, we say, hallelujah to you, Lord Jesus. Man could have even, not even thought of this. 
This is, this is the work of a holy, holy, holy God. Our Creator, the One who created us, has become our Redeemer. And Jesus Christ drank the cup of God's wrath that sinners could drink the cup of salvation. Okay, He drank the cup that was meant for us so that we could drink God's mercy in His cup of salvation. There's not a higher thought that can roll across your mind than Christ died for our sins. Revelation 5, I'll take you back there as we close. This is the anthem of the church. Forever and ever and 10 million years after that, the anthem of the church is Christ crucified. Christ died for our sins. And we get a snapshot in eternity that we will praise Jesus as the Lamb of God who was slaughtered for sinners and redeemed and ransomed people to Himself. We'll sing it to God forever. And this is the anthem of Jesus' church. So praise the Lord. All praise to this Lamb, this Holy Lamb, and for what He's done on the cross, the cross of Jesus. I'll hit two points of application just, just as we close. Just think about this. Three. If you're lost and you don't know Christ and you're here and you're not sure if you're a Christian, I just want to tell you that there, there is no other way. You have to deal with this message. You have to come to terms with the message of the cross. You don't need to run and figure something else out. You need to respond to what Jesus has done on this cross. The message of the cross. This is the powerful gospel that saves sinners, that brings people from death to life. Okay? I want, I want to say this to the church. The greatest commandment in all the Bible is to love God with everything that you have. That's the greatest commandment. Some of us may be a little confused about what that is, and we tend to exalt other things above that, but Jesus said that's the greatest one. The greatest commandment is to love God with everything that you have. Do you know that the fuel to obey the greatest commandment is what we just taught today? Do you know that? Say, so what do you mean? Christ died for your sins is the fuel for how you obey the greatest commandment in the Word of God. Our obedience to the greatest commandment is a response to what Christ has done for us on the cross. Listen closely to 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because He first loved us. Okay? The greatest commandment is to love God, and you can't love God without that. We love because He first loved us. It's a response, a reflex to what Jesus has done. We love because He first loved us. What do you mean by God loved us? 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The ability with which you grasp and believe and pursue this message fuels your ability to obey the greatest commandment in all the Bible. If your love for God is cold or stale or even lukewarm, there's no other place you need to run to Jesus Christ crucified. This is the only way to deal with that. Okay, Christ crucified. Second point. We need to be reminded as believers often of the finished work of Jesus. And you see this over and over and over again in the letters of the New Testament where the apostle will write something to Christians about Christ and what He's done on the cross. You see this all over the place. It saturates it. We need to be reminded all the time. Okay, We can walk and, 
I think it's a helpful way to say this. We can walk in gospel amnesia, okay? That something can happen to you and you can get up and live in such a way that you forget what Jesus has done and what's happened to you, okay? It is very easy for believers, and you might struggle with it. I pray this would be encouraging to you today. It is very easy for believers to, to live with this little bitty faint, vague sense of, of the displeasure of God or this little bitty vague, faint sense of, of condemnation of their own guilt before the Lord. It is so easy to wake up every day to live, to live exactly in that place. Okay? I want you to think about this. Based off of, of what we've done, you need to learn how to fight the fight of faith to press in and to make war that a lamb was slaughtered for you. Do you really think that there's anything left for you? This is why the Scriptures say there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because it was already all poured out. It's not that God didn't change, it just changed His mind. He consumed Jesus. He crushed Him on your behalf. And there's no condemnation left for you. Okay? And the guilt of your sins, a reminder of your sins, how do, you, how, do you drive, how do you drive a nail in that? How do you drive a stake in that? How do you get victory over this vague sense of guilt? Well, you see that scapegoat running off in the distance and disappearing in the horizon, and he carries away the sins of the people of God, away from God's presence, and they're never seen again. They are never seen again. So I pray that the Holy Spirit would use John 19, verse 30, and that he would just drive it like a stake in your soul. Okay? And that you would live in this place of remembering Jesus, of walking in faith to what Jesus has done. John 19, verse 30. I'll say this and then we'll pray together. We'll go into a time of corporate prayer. Everybody's free to pray. Uh, just please make sure you pray loud enough where everybody can hear you. John 19, verse 30. The dying breath of Jesus Christ. He says this. It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Amen. Praise the Lord.